Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas got hard and Texas got love. Texas talking. Oh, it don't matter what's done. Hi, this is Ross Ramsey here with the Tripcast for the first week of March. We are doing this live from the Austin Club on stage. I'm joined by Evan Smith, our editor. In chief and CEO. It was a pretty good night last night. Plenty to talk about. It was, it was a long night. It, it was. was. Um, Abby Livingston from our Washington Bureau. Happy Texas Independence Day. Patrick Svitek, uh, who's been all over the globe. Uh, been in Austin for about 15 minutes now. <laughs> Come on. What time did you actually drive back from the cruise party in Houston last night? Do I have to say? You have to say. <laughs> um, I got back around 3.30. Great. You're going you're to be really perky for right, the next be good for the first 12 minutes. Right, Jim yeah. Henson, who's one of our pollsters, he's with the Texas, with University of Texas at Austin and runs the Texas Politics Project there. Good morning. Good morning. So I think I'm up. So this is our What Happened Last Night episode. Um, the top lines are kind of interesting. Four incumbents got beat, which is a pretty small number. Norm, you know, normally there's more than that. There are three rematches that I count. I'm a little blurry this morning, but I count three rematches for the general election. And I count 18 runoffs, including two involving incumbents. Wasn't exactly an earthquake. No, actually, you know, there was a lot of bedwetting leading into this primary. Oh, my God, this person's in trouble. Oh, my God, that person's in trouble. Everybody running like they're losing, which turns out to have been probably a pretty good strategy. But this was nothing if not a status quo plus election. You know, the, if you divide the Texas House into the Strauss camp and the not Strauss camp, the Strauss camp lost two. Uh, Marsha Farney and Debbie Riddle, and let me pause and say, if you go back a couple of years, who would have imagined that Debbie Riddle would be a moderate? Right. Right. So you got two you lost, Farney and Riddle, but you lost Stuart Spitzer, and you lost Molly White. And while it's not a certainty that their replacements, Lance Gooden, a former member, and Hugh Shine, a former member, will be on Team Strauss, it's pretty much a, a, a lose two, gain two, and onward we go. And right. Strauss himself one handily. And of course, the speaker, who was, you know, he and others around him feared he might not uh, escape a runoff, got 60% of the vote. Yeah. Patrick, let's start at the top of the ballot. You've been chasing Ted Cruz all over the country. And um, I, sure. I guess a lot of people yesterday, you know, the chit chat in Austin, which is, you know, uh, kind of next to the definition of BS in the dictionary, uh, was that Cruz and Trump's race was narrowing in Texas. Sure, I think there was a conventional wisdom that it was at least a little tighter than Cruz probably would have liked it to be in, in the home stretch. I think he ended up having a, a very good night in Texas, specifically in Texas, all things considered. Um, best case scenario, obviously, for him would have been to crack 50% and get you know, all the statewide uh, delegates. Um, I don't think anyone ever expected that to truly happen. So next best case scenario for him um, was to have a nice, healthy, wide margin over Trump, which he did this morning. I think it was 17 points even. Um, so even outperforming a lot of the public polling. Um, in that regard. And then he also kept Marco Rubio, or he and Trump, I guess, collectively kept Marco Rubio below 20% and shut Marco Rubio out of those uh, statewide delegates. In fact, I don't think there was a single poll, Jim, that showed Cruz with a lead this large, right? Even the no, most optimistic polls did not. He outperformed that. all of the polls. And I think, you know, I think the, the, the conversations everybody was having was really would he crack 40? Mm -hmm. And he did that, as it turns out, pretty easily. He overperformed the polling average by several points. Uh, Trump underperformed slightly in Texas, but not hugely. Did, did Rubio on that same? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think Rubio did about about what we were thinking. Right. He seemed to be surging, but 
you know, I think we think maybe it was you and I talking yesterday. There just there wasn't enough time. I mean, if the, the election had been held in 2020, he might have caught up. <laughs> well, and I think one thing also that was pointed out to me before all of this by a consultant was don't forget early voting. And these presidential contest momentum swings so hard and so fast. And two weeks ago was an eternity in this presidential campaign. And Cruz was in a much stronger position. And so while the chatter was moving toward him narrowing, he had already laid some groundwork early on. Right. Right. Um, so no real surprises there. Uh, surprises on the other side? Um, I thought, well, the margin on the Clinton margin, you know, look, Jim's poll, the UT Tribune poll had to race at eight on the Republican side. And, you know, there were polls that had to race tied. You know, I'm thinking back to this Emerson College poll that everybody was all, you know, a flutter about that had the race between Cruz and Trump dead even. Of course, that was not. Well, and it had Rubio also in the margin of error. Not, not right. But, you know, almost, uh, you know, every poll recently has had the Clinton and Sanders margin wide. She, she won, I mean, she won by almost 40 points, right? Yeah, no, I mean, the, the Clinton performance is, is pretty amazing. Stunning. I think. You know, I mean, I, I think that race really, we were in the field for the UT Texas Tribune poll at precisely the best moment for Bernie Sanders. You know, as you were saying, two weeks ago was a universal way. We were, we were in the field right after he won New Hampshire and before Nevada. And it was, it was the high point for him. But I mean, not, you know, she outperformed yeah. everything. I think I, I'm pretty surprised at the magnitude of that, but I think I think a lot of things we can talk about that. I think a lot of different things converged to help her. And I, I honestly think that the Republican debate, you know, that has been, you know, reduced iconic, you know, icon iconographically to the still of the television with the closed captions saying, you know, basically unintelligible arguing actually helped her a lot. Yeah. Well, she won, you know, the one that surprised me in that was um, in our polling, Bernie was ahead with Anglos. And I saw a CBS exit poll from Texas last night that had Clinton winning there. She won. She won whites. She right. won with yeah. uh, African Americans and Hispanics about you know about the percentages you talked about. But right. the Anglo vote flipped. I think one thing um, that was fascinating and it doesn't is I was interested in the superdelegate fight over the state, and obviously superdelegates are Democratic Party members who have a special <laughs> delegate vote toward the nominee. Um, and I was interested in it, for one, because that was the center of the 2008 nomination fight with Barack Obama. But also, most of these superdelegates are members of Congress who know how to get the vote out in their own districts. And so what we saw, I mean, campaign sources will point to Sheila Jackson Lee as one of the most effective campaigners in the state. You had Eddie Bernice Johnson in Dallas. And uh, Johnson and some others were against the Clintons in 08, and they really wanted to get with them and help elect them. And so, I, I mean, you saw the entire Texas, what's left of the Democratic institution really lobbying hard and there was very scant backing of Bernie Sanders in that world. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting dynamic I think with both black voters and black elites who supported Obama and are now really shifting hard in favor of Clinton and then in a sense there's kind of a if you go back to the dynamic in 2008 how rough that got particularly in South Carolina yeah there's a little bit of a have your cake and eat it too now for black voters and black elites who can now say Right. We supported Obama. Now we actually get to demonstrate that it wasn't personal. Or, or an all is for, or an all is forgiven moment toward yeah. the, toward the Clintons. You know, the right. fact that Secretary Clinton got a bigger percentage of the black vote in South Carolina than Obama did in 08 is really an amazing thing to contemplate. Right. Right. You know, it was often said that Bill Clinton was the first black president. Hillary Clinton may turn out to be the third black president. But it, it also underlines how, in the end, for all that Sanders looked good in those early states. 
once you got to a much more multi-front, right. complex, right, right. more traditional democratic battle, he had nowhere the strength that the media coverage of him, I think, was suggesting. And in fact, even here in Austin, you know, he got 10,000 people out at the racetrack. But honestly, Obama, a year before the election in 08, got 15,000 people here. And the year of the election got north of 25,000 auditorium shores. I just think that the Sanders thing may be more, it may be more atmospherics then he'll, he'll always have Oklahoma. I think Sanders, <laughs> lost, he lost early vote in Travis County too, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that was probably right. an early sign if you're, right. you know, if you're easily losing. Yeah, they, a lot of people thought this would be the, you know, the Bernie Sanders County and all of this. So, Abby, a lot of people have had their worry beads out about Congress in Texas in the, you know, for the last two or three weeks. You know, um, oh, we hear so-and-so's in trouble, we hear so-and-so's in trouble. Everybody with incumbent after their name was fine. Uh, yes. Uh, I think Kevin Brady has a target on his back for probably the rest of the time he serves in Congress. He had a very narrow, he narrowly avoided the runoff. Um, and uh, He has one of the more active Tea Party groups exactly. in, in the state. Exactly, so he, he, is, he was not an incumbent caught sleeping, he's been engaged, he goes home, he spent money, he had outside groups helping him. Um, and so he, he's, a, he's, I probably separate him out from the rest. Um, but when I was, I'm, in my previous job, I was at Roll Call, which is a Capitol Hill newspaper, and I was always taught the warning sign is when a challenger outraises an incumbent. And we didn't have that in any of these situations. And so, but every time I would go into these races and call people, sources on the ground would say, but our race is different. It's different because of X. It's different because of Y. And um, it just comes down to if, if one person's on television and sending out direct mail and has all this support, it's really hard to run a campaign. I mean, in, in Houston, the, the most interesting race to me was actually a Democratic race. Gene Green was challenged by uh, former Harris County Sheriff Adrian Garcia. Who just came off of a mayor's race. Right, and so right. the argument was Garcia had name identification from that race. His base came, was in that district. Um, Gene Green's been living on borrowed time for however many terms because he's an Anglo representing a predominantly Hispanic district. Green, they called it, you know, we called it and the AP called it early and so it, it's it's one of those things that sometimes it's just unless an incumbent is caught sleeping or is uh, has some kind of horrible scandal it's really hard to ask well, let me ask you about a congressman speaking of sleeping uh, a congressman associated with pajamas uh, <laughs> Bla Blake Farenthold in Corpus Christi so nice transition right well she handed it to me it was it took Sorry. the baton um, uh, uh, Blake Farenthold actually had other than Brady the closest race of any of the incumbents he had a no-name I mean, a cardboard cutout opponent, right? Somebody who nobody had heard of. Uh, and he ended up being kept below 54%, right? He, he didn't almost lose, but it was reasonably close. It was, and he, he obviously, he has had some difficulties um, in the press and with, uh, he's had accusations that were, I guess they're pretty much dismissed at this point. I'm not sure what the right terminology is, but um, he had some trouble. and. He was unable to raise money, and so he has not been able to run a huge, robust campaign, and much of his money has gone to legal fees defending right. himself. And that's a district that redistricting built, really, right? That sure. used to be Big Solomon Ortiz's district, and Farenthold uh, won, and then it was redrawn, and it gave him an opportunity to solidify his, his base. But there, there's always been a question of whether the party necessarily wants him to be their guy. So is that the race where, is that the result where you look at it and you go, two years, somebody with some money, you know, can come back and... I thought he was vulnerable this year. And yeah. you, you can't lose your race if you don't have a really strong challenger who's raising money right. and right. taking you on. And, yeah, and arguably the strongest Democrat in the fall against him might have been the current mayor of Corpus Christi, Nelda Martinez, who pointedly declined to run against him because she believed that the redrawing of the lines has now made it a Republican seat. 
right. And all of these guys, they're, you know, the, the cases that we're talking about that won but won close will have to defend again in a midterm year, which will be much harder. Can I say one more thing? Abby said, you know, that one tell that an incumbent is going to win is if the challenger doesn't outraise you. Right. The other tell is if the newspaper endorses your opponent. That means you're sure you're going to win. In, in the case right. of in the, negative in the case of John Culberson, in the case of Louis Gohmert, and in the case of Blake Farenthold, the hometown papers, the big city papers, big city in some right. cases in quotes, all endorsed these nobody opponents in the primary against reasonably powerful Republican incumbents. And as is almost always the case with newspaper, newspaper endorsement these days, it meant nothing. Let's point out, Ted Cruz got exactly zero newspaper endorsements in the Republican primary in Texas. Lance Christian got how many? Three or four? Lance Christian may have gotten almost all of the endorsements in the Railroad Commission race. I think he finished fourth or fifth out of seven. Right. Newspaper, I think we could finally, let's pour one out for newspaper endorsements. So we had two the whole process is now completely done. We had, we had, you do this every year. Right, yes. Yeah, we poured it out last time. We did pour yes. it out last time. Not That's exactly right. news. Remember, Governor... Governor Hutchison and right. Senator Dewhurst, right? Yeah, that didn't exactly. So we work have two out. open seats in Congress. Uh, both of those go to runoffs. Uh, they do. Uh, there is the seat to replace retiring Congressman Randy Nagabauer of Lubbock, uh, and that is uh, come down to two Lubbock-based candidates: uh, Lubbock Mayor Glenn Robertson and uh, Jody Arrington, who worked for the Bush administration. Right. Um, and that one went pretty light. Uh, Robertson's predominantly self-funding his campaign. Arrington's running a more conventional donor-driven campaign. He's leaned on his Bush contacts. Uh, and down in South Texas, uh, the state had an opportunity to elect the first Latina member of the House and didn't. Much hyped opportunity. Much hyped and it didn't happen. She uh, wasn't even close to making a runoff, right? About a thousand votes out. Yeah, but in a small turnout race, right? Yeah. And again, this she she had the endorsement of Emily's List, which is one of the most powerful political action committees in politics, but they didn't buy TV ads for her, whereas she was going against a self-funder named Vicente Gonzalez, who spent a million dollars, and a uh, school board member named Sonny Palacios, who uh, has a pretty well-known name brand. He didn't spend as much on TV, right. but he already had some established name identification. So it's, it's just it's the laws of, politic, of politics just kind of held last night. Right. Right. So I was interested, you know, all the people at TMA are, uh, got their worry beads out this morning, and the Senate race to replace Troy Frazier, um, the runoff is between a former board member at TMA and the spouse of the former president of TMA, uh, Susan King and Don Buckingham. That's ought to be fun. Well, in fact, the, again, the, you know, it, it, one has to remember that the block between the Austin Club and the Starbucks attending Congress is not reality. If you travel that block as often as we do, you heard Susan King is dropping like a stone. She's not going to make the runoff. Well, Susan King actually came in first by a healthy margin right. in that race. Right. And so, you know, the conventional wisdom is almost always wrong, and it was wrong in this case. And so Dr. Buckingham and, and, and Susan King will, will be, but, you know, but I think what's interesting there is if you ask the grassroots who they prefer in that runoff, they say nobody. Right, right. They don't like either of those guys. This whole movement conservative thing in that district was, you know, I, I um, heard this from other places. I moderated a forum in that in that race up in Fredericksburg, and there didn't seem it was interesting. There didn't seem to be a crowd favorite. You know, this is, this right. is three or four weeks out, and it was you know it's like couldn't really get a read on it. Well, the movement guys thought we're going to get rid of Fraser, we're going to get a reliable vote in the Senate, right. and now they're looking at this going. Ugh. And Matt Langston, who uh, got Don Huffines into the Senate, ran his campaign up in Dallas, uh, left Huffines' office at least temporarily to run Buckingham, to run Buckingham's right. race. Uh, right. But, but a lot of the, as you say, a lot of the grassroots 
weren't uh, terribly excited about that. The other open seat in the Senate um, turns into a runoff as well. Um, two former, I guess, current members of the Texas House, Brian Hughes and David Simpson. Uh, and Hughes missed making 50% by a small amount, and Simpson only beat the third place guy by 100 votes the or something. Red Brown, right. uh, the general. Uh, right. I mean, I, I wonder if Simpson is going to continue. I, I mean, I don't have any reason to think he's not going to, but often what happens in a case like this, where the first place guy gets like 48 or 49%, and you have to get into a runoff period, the second place person looks at it and goes, eh, no. So I, I wonder if, if it'll end up getting to a runoff, but we'll see. Right. So any other surprises in the Senate? Anything? I guess uh, that thing in San Antonio, <laughs> that, that little contest down there, uh, turned out not to be anything. I mean, this is like the fourth race in a row where San Antonio, the expectations are over here, the outcome is over here. Uh, yeah, you know, I never really understood, uh, you know, especially in that race. I mean, that was obviously such an inside baseball race. I, I We're talking about this, Jose Menendez yes. and Trey Martinez for right. sure. Right, right. You know, where I think... You know, for people in this room, it was a hard race to have to take a side if you weren't already lined up on, on one side or the other. Right. But, you know, I mean, you know, the substrate of politics in San Antonio for all the national attention it gets really is very close to the center. And I think, you know, we've seen that again and again and again in races in San Antonio. I'm not sure why we're surprised anymore. Yeah. Um, this one was interesting. It was, you know, the, the predicate was that Menendez had been elected in a special with Republican support. It's a Democratic district, yada, yada, yada. I'd like to point out to you that the margin of victory for Jose Menendez last night against Trey was exactly the same margin, exactly the same margin of victory as, as in the special. So the idea that somehow the outcome of the special was, you know, as is now kind of a cliche to say, it's a dumpster fire San Antonio special election and the Republicans turned out and they ultimately won this race. Whatever Representative Martinez Fisher says about the special election, he can't blame the outcome of this primary on Republicans, right? No, no, I, I think, sorry, but there was, a, there was a sense, I think, that you know, a big turnout and a big margin for Clinton was gonna be good for Trey Martinez-Fisher, and that certainly did not turn out to be good. Yeah, I was gonna say, this is one of those legislative races where there was an assumption that they could at least capitalize somewhat on the presidential race, like yeah. you said. Um, you know, Clinton did it obviously very, very well here, and it, it, didn't, it didn't seem to pay off for Trey Martinez-Fisher. You look at the, the Gene Green and Adrian Garcia race. Adrian Garcia, you know, he seemed to, to think that having Donald Trump on the ticket would, uh, you know, in, incentivize uh, Hispanic voters to come out and support him. And it, so that was another race, I think, where you saw one of the, the, the challengers, I guess, um, you know, hope that maybe the presidential race would change the dynamic a little bit or give them a leg up, and it didn't really pan out. Well, in fact, one, Patrick, one thing that we were concerned, concerned is maybe the wrong word, but interested in, right, focused on going into this, is that you had all these people who had turned out to vote early who had no history of voting in Republican primaries. And there was this, what are we going to do about this? What do we make of this sense until yesterday? Is this a wave election? Is this going to be a disruption election, throw everybody out, a whole bunch of incumbents are going to lose, we're not expecting, you know, this to happen, but could this be a, a tell? And for all the disruption that happens elsewhere in the country and for all the discussion of what an unprecedented cycle this was, there was very little indication that Texas was disrupted last night, right? No, not at all. I mean, I think the Cruz campaign was watching with, with just some uncertainty at this, this record high turnout, um, you know, which in, in, in some scenarios has favored Donald Trump, in some scenarios it hasn't. Obviously in Iowa, in the Iowa caucuses, for example, there was record high turnout and, and Cruz won. Um, but, you know, Dan Patrick on, on the eve of the Texas primary very emphatically told reporters, we have a million new people coming out to participate in this process and we're confident that they're all coming out to support Ted Cruz. That's probably a bit of an overstatement, uh, but it certainly, you know, it didn't hurt Ted Cruz. 
the connection between the top, you know, it's a little early to ask this, I guess, but you know, the connection between the top ticket races and what happened below seems to be pretty tenuous. You know, the you know, you couldn't tell necessarily if I'm a Trump voter and I go to the polls, I don't necessarily know because I'm a Trump voter what that means when I vote for railroad commissioner or you know whatever else on the ballot here. Well, I think that's especially true with a Trump voter. I don't think we know what a Trump voter thinks from other parts of the ballot. But I mean, I think there's a larger kind of theme that emerges here that is, which is that there's not, there's a lot of separation between the top and the bottom, and there's not a big, you know, I think it's hard to find larger themes here, right. particularly when you're focused on congressional and legislative races. I mean, there are these overlays that are going on at the, at the top of the ballot and in the political universe that, again, people in this room watch. But if you look at state legislative races, they're framed somewhat by those rates, and congressional races, they're framed somewhat by that. And in the case of, you know, I think Abby's example is really good of um, the congressional machinery being put to the service of the presidential candidates. But for the most part, a lot of these local races are local dynamics. I even hesitate to sort it out in Strauss, anti-Strauss, in terms of the electoral out, out well, the anti-Strauss people absolutely want to make it about Strauss. The fact is yeah, that Yeah, but my the, point is it's the, not working. Well, right. So the fruitcake heir in Corsicana, who was supposed to dispatch uh, or send a, a, a Byron Cook packing, really what Byron Cook was running against was the anti-Strauss gestalt, right? He wasn't willing to run against. This guy was irrelevant. You could have put anybody in that position. He was, yeah. Cook was running effectively against Strauss. Right. I, I, you know, well, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I entirely agree with that because I think if you look at the campaign that Cook ran, I mean, he didn't go around his district saying, "I'm one of Joe Strauss's guys, and we're running against." No, these but other the other, guys. but the other side went around the district saying he's one of Strauss's. But what guys. they did is they campaigned. They said, "No, he hires illegal aliens, and they plugged yeah. into immigration." Right. And so if there's one thing that connects it, it's those dynamics. Yeah. And I think yeah. the dynamics we pay attention to have a lot less, are a lot less successful as a campaign tool. Half of Texans still don't know who Joe Strauss is. They have no opinion of him. I would but. agree completely with that. I don't know too much about the state ledge races, but I spent a lot of time in my hometown of Fort Worth in the last few weeks. And the Beau French Charlie Guerin race has just consumed the city, and everyone's got their signs out and talking about it and gossip. It means the best political gossip I've ever heard in my hometown. And I've ne I never once heard the word Joe Strauss in any of these conversations. It was all about these two characters in the West Side of Fort Worth. It was all Chris Kyle. Well, it turned out in the end it was all about Chris Kyle. Exactly. Look, look the, the speaker has had to endure an awful lot of attacks on him in races that have nothing to, to do with him. We know that. The Empower Texans political machine has used Strauss as a, a, a punching bag in a lot of cases that's, where Strauss really, you know. That's part of the speaker's job. I it mean, is, this, that's this right. This happened to Craddock. It is. You know, all the you know Dan, Dan, Dan Flynn's race was to some degree about Strauss. Right. Marsha Farney's race was to some degree about Strauss, and she lost. It wasn't right. entirely about that. Right. A lot of these races, they said, we need to get a more conservative leader at the top of the House like we have in the Senate. Now, I agree with you. This is a, an Austin conversation. I don't disagree you with know, you I mean, about when that. When you say it's about Strauss, what's the evidence for that? I mean, I think it... If you were to be able to, if you were to have the opportunity to look at the internal polling that they're doing, yeah. I think not any of the issue polling that you could look at, you would, would you find a district that said, I'm going to go and vote because of my opinion of Joe Strauss? Ab absolutely, but I think the campaigns that the opponents are running are at least in part as they talk about them. This is really about, we need somebody in there who's going to support grassroots conservative values. We need a grassroots leader. 
you know, Dan Flynn is a Joe Strauss guy. We need somebody who's going to vote for a more conservative. I mean, that's that's kind of the, those are the talking points, at least, well, whether it moves a for, single vote or not. And a lot of that is for use downstairs for fundraisers. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things. Uh, we were supposed to have a big tumultuous night on the Texas Supreme Court. And didn't. Yeah, that turned out to be a big nothing burger, didn't it? Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Eva Guzman, who uh, whose campaign was, you know, privately pretty worried about you know, this phenomena of if you have an Hispanic name and you're running in a Republican primary in a low information race with a bunch of voters who don't necessarily know who you are, yada, 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 she's the one in trouble. She won going away, 58 points, I think, something like that last time I looked. Uh, green versus green, it's like Jardice versus Jardice, right? Uh, green versus green, uh, Paul the incumbent beat Rick the challenger uh, pretty handily. Um, for the other race, yeah. where you had all of the, you know, a fair amount of the business lobby jumping up against a an incumbent justice, Deborah Lehrman won pretty handily against Michael Massengale, including in his home county of Harris. Well, in fact, again, more more proof that for incumbents it was a pretty much status quo night. Uh, can I want to ask uh, Patrick, who's kind of our Abbott whisperer at the moment at the Tribune? Abbott got into the Guzman race. He, he did. Yeah, he, he endorsed, endorsed Guzman. There. He did not endorse Paul Green. He did not endorse. He did a fundraiser for Lehrman at the beginning of the race, but never used the E word. And in fact, when she ran a photograph of herself and Abbott in her mailer, the Massingale people cried foul and said she's trying to claim that he endorsed her right. when he didn't, and technically they're right. But he made a point of endorsing selectively. He endorsed Guzman, but he didn't endorse the other incumbents. What do you think is going on in the mind of the governor here? I don't quite know. <laughs> I asked him about it when we had our, our sit down the other day, and I said, um, you know, how do we read this? Um, because, you know, he's generally hinted at staying out of Republican primaries, and he very sternly said, I would not read too much into me getting behind Eva Guzman. Um, and so that was, you know, that was really his sole, I believe, formal endorsement of the cycle in a, in a primary. I wouldn't read too much into it. You endorsed one, <laughs> but you didn't endorse the other two. Well, let's talk just for a Pardon second. Pardon me if I read into it. And then he said the, the presidential race is the only primary he's getting involved in. Were endorsements worth anything this year? Dan Patrick was really, really heavily behind Cruz, um, traveled, traveled the states with him. Um, Abbott came in late, but, you know, at a, at a time that yeah. was arguably... I'd, I'd, I'd ask Abby if the Hispanic delegation in Houston supporting Gene Green over Adrian Garcia early and strong made a difference. I, I think it did. I, I mean, it... it having it wasn't just the delegation it was every i mean almost every hispanic in congress was behind him and i mean i would kind of call around and i you know you have the congressional hispanic caucus and if adrian garcia had won they would add their one more to their numbers and give them a little more clout in the house and i just heard over and over um you know he's voted the way we've needed him to we trust gene green and they gave him ten, the chc Pat gave him $10,000. I mean, it was, they gave him so much cover. Javier Becerra, the highest ranking Latino in Congress, came down and campaigned for him. So I think it helped him make the case. Um, and and I, I think it was also the local Hispanics who endorsed him. I mean, they, they really uh, got out in front early. And I think it helped him nip the momentum in the bud. And you saw, actually, in Iowa and elsewhere, a whole bunch of Texas legislators traveling around the country. To, oh, yeah, to campaign on behalf of Cruz, knock on yep. doors, speak at caucuses. Yep, and then last night on stage, I think Lois Kolkhorst was there, Brian Birdwell, uh, Donna Campbell. Um, I will say about Dan Patrick, I think it's been interesting. Um, he has proven to be a very enthusiastic 
and loyal surrogate for Ted Cruz. Uh -huh. um, you know, not that I was, I was skeptical once the endorsement was official that that would happen, uh, but he has been at election night parties. He's yeah. been at the center of action uh, with reporters, very aggressively framing kind of, the kind election. Of groupie, really. <laughs> I mean, he, he obviously frenemy is a love story. <laughs> he obviously revels in the role, but very rarely do it. You know, do I does the strength of a surrogate you know stand out to me or something like that? But I think right. not just in Texas, but in other states. Um, Dan Patrick's proven to be a very, I think, effective I think, and loyal surrogate. I think I might suggest, though, some like reversing the causal benefit arrow <laughs> yeah, exactly. here and thinking, you know, not that endorsements help, you know, Ted Cruz from all these yeah. people, but how much do these people all want pictures with Ted Cruz? I mean, well, there's a reason you know, I mean, people I mean, were all on camera last yeah. night. Seems I'm like every, that, yeah, every time there's a yeah. camera, you know, I thought, you know, Cruz and Patrick look like Siamese Patrick. twins. I mean, yeah. right. you know, except for the shirt, you couldn't really tell the Not just like Dan Patrick, he's, he's earned the right, I think, to stand beside Cruz on the stage at a lot of these. these so but so, so to, to that, okay, so Patrick endorsed Cruz early-ish. Right. Yeah. Abbott waited pretty long to endorse Cruz. Now, there's two ways you could take that. One is he was hedging his bets. That's the more negative i.e. media view of it, <laughs> that, he's head, that he's hedging his bets, he wanted to, you know, he's very, Abbott is cautious by disposition, he wanted to be cautious. The other is that he was pulling a Nikki Haley, he was waiting to endorse, although it didn't really work out for Rubio, well, the campaign he was controls, waiting to endorse until late enough that it would make a difference. The campaign controls when it's announced. I mean, I'm sure they announced Abbott last week at the behest of the Cruz campaign. Yeah. And it turned out, you know, I mean, to be somewhat useful, I mean, you know, Donald Trump's announcing all of his stuff and... Um, Rubio's having his moment in the sun, which lasted about 14 minutes, I think. Um, it's, and those endorsements can just totally change a bad news day. I was sitting in Fort Worth, Texas in a news conference texting a source and saying, Trump's having a really rough morning. Literally 90 seconds later. Oh, that was, was the bed, that was the bed wedding or the pants wedding morning, right? Yes. Right. Chris, yes. Christie walks in the room and the, uh, the entire day changed for everyone. And so right. it's like those endorsements. You can, I mean, I think the Abbott one was just timed when Cruz was really bruising from South Carolina, and it just, it's like a good right. news story to kind of divert. So John, so now John Cornyn's going to endorse Cruz, I'm sure, now that Cruz has won Texas. It's a matter of time. <laughs> yeah, we, we, talk, we talked about this on last week's, trip, last week's trip cast. I right. think the, the timing of the Abbott endorsement was totally strategic. I, don't, I think it's completely a mistake to read any weakness or hesitation into that. I don't think anybody here had any doubt that Abbott was going to endorse Cruz. So right. it was all about strategic timing that helped that helped the Cruz campaign and its timing. Yeah. Any I, other notes? I have to say, my favorite endorser to watch was Rick Perry, because I couldn't tell if he just really liked Ted Cruz or if he really liked ripping Donald Trump on stage. Well, in the it middle was... of endorsing Ted Cruz, he says, you know, we could have a brokered convention, and now that my indictment's gone, I might be back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm endorsing yeah. him, but I'm that, right here. That made the endorsement seem a little less full-throated than at first blush. <laughs> um, yes. I, I would actually, I, I would, if you're asking for last yeah, notes, I, I, I think that now we, we've, you know, Texas has no competitive elections. This is a, an article of faith. Redistricting and whatever else has made the state non-competitive outside of the primary process. So we're going to get into the fall now, and pretty much everything we saw yesterday is going to roll into a legislative session, well, roll into a congressional session. We still have 18 runoffs. Right. But, in Texas, but, 23. But you get out of the primary and runoff process, and we're pretty much where we are. Right. The congressional district in San Antonio is the only one of the 36 that is truly competitive in the general. You mentioned a couple of rematches. Galindo and Cortez in San Antonio will theoretically be a competitive race. Marianne Perez and Gilbert Pena in Houston will theoretically be a competitive race. Right. So that's three. Right. I can't think of a fourth. Well, the guy what, the, what the hell are we doing in the fall? I mentioned Gallego and Heard, Galindo uh, and Cortez. 
Perez and, and Pena, what are we even bothering to have a general election for? <laughs> That's great. Did you just say that in the fall for the fall poll we can do all policy issues? Yes, awesome. absolutely. <laughs> but I'm, but I'm, I'm asking it obviously only partly facetiously. I mean, this right. really. We're at a point now where this, the November elections effectively do not make a difference at all. Well, the November election is interesting. You know, this sets up as an election where, unlike the primaries, you're going to have an indicator that says if you're with this presidential candidate or against that presidential candidate, um, there's an indicator that says this person is from that party. So a Trump or a Clinton may have may well have some down ballot effects, coattail effect, and right. negative or positive in a way that was hard to identify in the primary because there was no way to sort of look at the ballot and say, oh, that's a, that's a Cruz Republican or that's a Trump Republican or that's a Rubio Republican. So, I, you know, in that sense, it's a nationalized race to a much greater extent, potentially, than the primary was. And we may see mischief in the general election in the same way that we saw it potentially yesterday, in that you may have, if Trump were Trump to be the nominee, you may have Republicans who cast for the very first time in their lives a vote for the Democrat, or you may have Republicans who decide to stay home. If you believe this whole never Trump phenomenon, right. which I think is overstated probably. Right. 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 Well, that's about 30 minutes. We'll take some audience questions in a minute. But for now, if you have questions or comments, email them to Tribcast at texastribune.org. You can also sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org slash Tribcast. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for our music. On behalf of Evan, Abby, Patrick, Jim, and our producer Todd, I'm Ross. Thanks for listening. That's where the tape cuts. <laughs> uh, and okay. so, we, so we can cuss now? Yeah. <laughs> now I'm cussing is allowed. Takes is talking. This is the greatest country on earth, man. <laughs>